Thanks for tuning in to the Drive On Podcast, where we're focused on giving hope and strength to the entire military community. Whether you're a veteran, active duty, guard, reserve, or a family member, this podcast will share inspirational stories and resources that are useful to you. I'm your host, Scott Lucio, and now let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Drive On Podcast. Today, my guest is Andrew Culkin. Andrew is the author of the book, Amanda, A Cautionary Tale, where he discusses how his wife of 25 years passed away due to alcoholism and how he was able to find a purpose to help others understand alcoholism and what leads to that. So welcome to the show, Andrew. I'm really glad to have you here. Thanks, Scott. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? I know this is not the typical episode where usually we talk to veterans and other people who are specifically servicing veterans. But in this case, your discussion is a little bit outside of the norm for what we have on this conversation. But please give us a little background on on who you are and what you've written with your book and everything like that. Sure. Originally, I'm, I've been an insurance broker for the last 30 years. One thing that I wrote the book, Amanda, A Cautionary Tale. She was my wife of 25 years. She passed away a little over two years ago. And from that, I really wanted to find a purpose. You know, I didn't want to just, you know, have a box of ashes and that was the end of it. Um, I, I needed to find some meaning behind all the pain and suffering that she went through. And ultimately myself and my, my, well, my son's 22 now, he was 20 then, but you know, all the things that we went through, you know, talk about post-traumatic stress syndrome. There's, there's a lot of things that family members go through that's attached to the alcoholic. When, when someone's an alcoholic in the family, the whole family <laughs> is an alcoholic in one sense or one sense or another. One thing I was excited about talking with you, Scott, is that well, I was a broker for about 30 years. Most of my clients, I say half of my clients when I first started back in the 80s and 90s, were World War II veterans, Korean veterans, and then eventually Vietnam veterans once they aged into 65, because you had to be 65 and older. And so many of them, you know, they had issues. <laughs> right. You know? I mean, talk about guys that were in Battle of the Bulge and, you know, just major wars. And you know they had issues and they carried them in, they carried them for the rest of their life. And unfortunately, there were no podcasts or outlets to talk about these things. And there was definitely a different stigma in the 50s and 60s after the war about mental health. You know, I mean, even Patton, Patton slapped a guy because, you know, he had battle fatigue. (laughs) The guy was, you know, he was probably a 19 year old kid and he'd probably seen some stuff he didn't need to see, you know. And it's good that we're able to, you know, have a conversation like this and to help people, you know, it's ultimately what we're trying to do. Yeah. Ultimately that's the whole point of this podcast because so many people, like you said, from prior generations, they came home and they just figured, oh, I got to just be a man, suck it up and deal with it. And oftentimes that involves things like drinking your problems away and drink their problems away. They, they, you know, they, they slap their wives around. They were mean to their kids. And it was just, that's a family matter, (laughs) you know? Right. Right. (laughs) And, and, you know, think about the ripple effects that stuff like that has when you're a young child growing up in a household where your, your dad's drinking all the time and he's beating your wife or beating his wife and uh, mom. Right. And then maybe you know, being abusive towards you or, you know, whether it's physically or verbally abusive towards you, then, you know, as you're growing up, that seems like, well, that's just how life is. And then maybe that's the type of person that you become when you get generational. Absolutely. Exactly. You know? And so, 
So that's not obviously something that we want for families in future generations, because I mean, that's clearly dysfunctional. You don't want that going on in, in the world. So I, I guess, you know, the reason why I wanted to have you on the show is because a lot of the issues that we talk about on this podcast are things like what you just talked yeah. about uh, related to veterans, including the mental health related issues. And oftentimes we find these people self-medicating, with, right. whether it's drugs or alcohol, whatever it may be. And they end up at the point where they just can't easily stop using them. They're hooked on whatever it happens to be. And, uh, you know, I know you've lived this in your own family and you've seen firsthand the other side of this, where you have a loved one who went off and ended up going too far with, uh, with this alcohol uh, issue that they had. So you know, I, that's why I want to have you on and talk to you about everything that you experienced. So that way, you know, maybe the people who are out there who maybe have a bad relationship with alcohol don't necessarily realize what they're doing to their families might that, understand now where they're coming from, right? Well, that's the biggest thing is self-actualization. The, the, the only way a person will ever solve the problem, even be, even begin to solve the problem, is that they have to admit that they have a problem to begin with. Yeah, you know, my my wife was in denial until I held her hand and we turned off her machines. <laughs> you know, it just you, you have to admit that you have a problem. And mental health in general, we need to have more empathy. Society has to have a different viewpoint of mental health. It's a men- alcoholism is a mental health disease. It's a disease no different than cancer or heart disease. Now we have all the empathy in the world for someone who has cancer. And they have no hair because they're going through chemo. It's like, oh, bless your family. And we hope you, which is normal. But the alcoholic who's fallen down the stairs and who's crashing into cars and who's acting like an idiot, that there's no empathy for this person because they think it's self-induced. Right. In reality, it's not self-induced. And once you become chronic, you're really wrapped into a very bad place, you know, a, a disease. And the only way out is self-admittance and you need a lot of help. You have to admit that you need help and you need to get the help. Well, I guess let's maybe take it one step before that right. you're just talking about. First off, let's start with how people can identify that they themselves have a problem with alcohol. Or maybe on, on the other hand, maybe that a loved one has a problem with it. And it's not just a casual drinker who went overboard, you know, one night or two, you know, something like that. Not necessarily saying that's a good thing either, but it's less of a problem than what you're talking about when you get to that chronic stage or whatever. So, so how do you identify that so that it doesn't get to that point? Well, a lot of people, especially military, because most military guys are between the ages of 18 to 22 when they start and go to war, most People start their alcoholic career between the ages of 15 and 22. So that's the time you're most susceptible. Generally, when you, when, and I've read a lot about this, like Alcoholics Anonymous and things, usually most people start in college in that same era. And you have a, you might start on the weekend, you start drinking on a Friday and Saturday, and all of a sudden Monday, well, you need a little hair of the dog. So you're drinking Monday before you know it's Thursday and you're still drinking from the last weekend. So you've created a habit that, that if you're able to recognize it soon enough, and that's really what I'm trying to do is for people to recognize it in themselves. If you recognize it soon enough, then you can stop it and get help. But 
There's a lot of people that just continue. One weekend goes into one weekend and another weekend. And before you know it, you've created a habit that you're in danger of. And that can happen very quickly. Well, alcoholism, it's not as quick as you know other drugs, but it can happen within a six-month time period. You can become an alcoholic. You know, you're well on your road to your career. Right, right. And that's, I suppose, part of the thing that I wanted to get across to people is that, you know, like you said with your wife, you were basically dealing with someone who was in denial right. throughout the entire stage of this. And like you said, it could only be a matter of a few months before right. you're at that stage where you're, you know, develop this habit where you kind of can't stop. And I personally, I would think that it's just much better to take that break, take a, a walk away from it and give yourself that chance to break that habit. And that's, I know that's easier said than done in some cases, but if you're capable of breaking that habit, that gives you the chance at being able to not get to that stage where you're chronic well, with this, well, right? the real, well, the real issue is the last person to know that they have a problem is the alcoholic. Everyone around them is fully aware that they have a problem. Right. The alcoholic's the last one to know. And you, your friends can tell you, your family can tell you, but you're talking to a wall when someone's actually caught in that grip. Yeah. And you have to do things like interventions and you have to really get into a person's face. And unfortunately, when someone becomes chronic, just to go a little further, you're going to lose your friends, even long-term friends. It's, you're going to become very isolated because people aren't quite simply aren't going to want to be around you anymore. Right. You know, and that's another big issue. You, you, the help that you have will eventually go away. Eventually you won't have any help. That's why a lot of these Vietnam vets and vets of Desert Storm and, and even Afghanistan, a lot of people are homeless because their support systems have gone, have gone south. They can't handle it anymore. Yeah, they end up pushing those people away uh, right. just through their behaviors and that their attitudes towards maybe an intervention or something. They don't like that. So I guess what's the best way that we can approach a loved one who seems to be dealing with alcoholism? Because like you said, we're probably the ones who are going to be the ones who notice it first before they do. What's the best way to approach them so that way not only can we get them the help that they need, but also the preserve the relationship that we have with them? Well, you, you really have to break it down and explain their actions, what's gone on in their life specifically. Like my wife, for example, first time we put her in a rehab and she ultimately went to seven, she had already had two DUIs. She had driven the car through the front of the house and she had passed out on the living room floor on a regular basis for several months. And I explained to her, this is the behavior that we've had to deal with. My son and I have had to deal with. So... This is the deal. You're either going to an intervention or your son and I are going to fi find someplace else to live elsewhere. And you have to draw a line in the sand somewhere. Okay. If the person it, it still can't have the self-actualization to realize that they have an issue, then you got to draw a line in the sand. You have to get very tough. You have to have a lot of very tough love to help these people. And sometimes you do have to walk away. There, there will become a, a point with some people where you have to walk away to preserve your own sanity, <laughs> you know, but yeah, that's, it, but to answer your question, you have to draw a line in the sand with some people. Yeah. You know? Sometimes that seems like that might be the kick in the rear that some people need right. to say, well, I, you know, this stuff that I might be losing is more important than whatever 
you know, the alcohol is getting full. And if the, if the relationship, family or, yeah, if the relationship is strong enough, yeah, then you will recognize, I don't want to lose this relationship. And yes, I do need to take action. Right. And sometimes you have to push it in that direction. And that's the first step. That's just the first step. <laughs> right. And I've noticed in some cases with certain people that they kind of need to come to the conclusion on their own that there is a problem and, and that you, have to. you can tell them a thousand times, Hey, I think you should cut this back. I think you should stop drinking, but eventually they're going to have to just figure this out on their own. And it's that internal spark that they have, that's going to drive them to want to make that change in their life. But if they don't recognize this as a problem, or if they don't, uh, they don't see that whatever it is that they're doing is causing harm to other people, then they may not ever get that internal spark that I was talking about that drives them to make, want to make a change. And so the pain has to be worse than the pleasure. Sorry. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's, I I think the gist of what I was trying to say is, you know, that exactly right. Uh, The pain does have to be greater than the pleasure. And that's how you make those kind of changes. It goes deeper than just those one-on-one relationships sometimes. So, because I think in society, we have a, like just a different understanding of alcoholism. You know, like you said, it's like any other kind of disease that you might have, whether it's cancer or other heart disease or things like that. How can we, as a society, help people in their recovery to, to make it more acceptable, maybe to go to you know, rehab or something like that. What, we, what we has to, society's role here? We have to be less reactionary. You know, we have to realize when someone's falling down drunk or a homeless person is struggling, obviously, we have to have more empathy for these people, really. I mean, and instead of, you know, mocking somebody, you know, like other mental health diseases, someone has Down syndrome, for example, we don't sit there and mock that person out for having Down syndrome or someone who has you know, some kind of learning disability. We don't mock these people out. Why do we mock out the person who's struggling with uh, the chemical dependency of alcoholism? And it's really, in a sense, it's really no other, it's not much different because you, when someone has a chemical dependency, they don't have the ability to stop. They're past the point of willpower. Willpower is not, willpower is, you're past that, you know, and you're going to need additional help. Uh, but society needs to understand it as a disease and they don't, they just, they think it's the person. Why doesn't the person just stop drinking? Right. It's like, why doesn't the person, why doesn't the person just stop having cancer? It makes about as much sense. (laughs) Right. I mean, I can understand where that mindset comes from though, because if, I mean, naturally, if you don't drink the alcohol, then you're not going to have the problem. We're all very judgmental. Exactly. Well, it, that's true. Yeah. But to your point, it is a de- dependency and you know, you get to that point where you need it to, to, well, well you need it to get through, right? need it to get through your day. Yeah, exactly. You can't, you're actually non-functioning without it mentally, you know? Exactly. And so when you get to that point where you're just not functioning at all without it, then it's easy to say, Oh, well, just don't drink it, but right. <laughs> can't you, like, that's you, like you saying, actually need it. Why don't you cut your right leg off? It makes about as much sense when you get to that yeah. point. And people don't yeah. understand. People don't understand that. They don't just, understand it as a disease. Just stop breathing or right. you know, just stop drinking water <laughs> or whatever. Like eventually your body's going to need that to, 
continue to function. And so that that's why we want to catch people before they get to that point, because the problem is when people are chronic and they've been drinking for five, 10, 15 years, the chances of survival and actually overcoming this disease are close to zero. They're like 5% at best, you know? And that's such a shame because it's something that can be caught earlier. It can be. Something can be done about this when you're still in that willpower stage. Right. Where you can just say, okay, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to not drink for the next six months, or I'm not going to drink as often or whatever the appropriate solution is for that individual. And you can catch that, you know, it's not necessarily saying that every single person around the world has to give up alcohol altogether. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a teetotaler myself, but right. you know, you, you, it's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about another level that people, most people never have an experience with. Exactly. So, so I guess the first thing is let's try to nip this in the bud before right. it gets to that point right. um, where people are in that chronic stage where they are dependent on the alcohol. Try to get it before that. You understand why they're drinking to begin with. What's the real core issue? What's the deep core issue of why they're, you know, they're drinking to begin with. They're trying to escape something or they may have inhibitions. That's why people initially drink. They have inhibitions and they're able to become the person that they weren't able to become with alcohol. Yeah. There's a lot of different reasons why people start to drink to begin with. Or there's a lot of stress in their life. This is why, not to jump forward, but like COVID-19, there's been a 25% increase because of COVID-19, because people are losing their jobs, their, in- their incomes, you know, and they, they don't have access to things that they had. And the stress creates, you know, alcoholism. You know, and you have to really get down to the point of why did you start to begin with? Right. And once then you can answer that question, then you can address the root cause and then the need for the alcohol to fill whatever, fill a void or to cope with the stress or whatever becomes less and less. And then I would think just naturally you start to experience that the person will not be drinking quite as much, you know, to fill those things. And so that's, that's great. I think that's probably the best outcome for an individual is to to stop this before it gets to be uh, that problem. That's your best chance. (laughs) Exactly. But what happens to the people who are already at that point where it's already a problem? They're already dependent on it. They're drinking every day. They're drinking in the morning. They're drinking in the afternoon. They're drinking at night. They're drinking all day long and they're getting into trouble or, you know, things are falling apart in their lives. You mentioned rehab facilities. What are some of the benefits of that and, or maybe some of the drawbacks to those? And, you know, how do we help people who are already at that point? Well, like if you see these shows like Intervention, if you've ever seen those where they have a family gets around and they finally get their loved one in the room and they talk them going to an intervention and the person finally agrees to go to the rehab and the whole family's like, oh, finally, they're going to be saved. Well, <laughs> I've been through rehabs, seven of them with my wife, but rehabs are a band-aid. They're a good place to start because a person has to be there for at least 30, 60, 90 days, depending on the rehab. And most insurance will cover it, which is really good, which is very important because they're 30, 40,000 bucks a whack. But it gives the person a 30-day break from drinking. They have intense counseling with like-minded people. They're very good in that aspect. 
And also the person is sober. They're forced to be sober for 30 days. In fact, they don't even let them go into the general housing until they've been uh, out of detox for you know, like three to seven days. A lot of these people come in, they're so blasted, they don't even know they're in <laughs> But, you know, and it's a band-aid. It's just the beginning. The yeah. problem is from there, you have got to go to, I can't stress this enough. You have to go to AA meetings or some, or something of that ilk. You have to be around support groups if you need to go to a meeting every single day and you have to have a sponsor. You have to have someone who is an accountability partner. And alcoholism is a, it's a day-to-day thing. It's not, I'm okay on Monday and maybe I'll check in on Friday. No, you have to go every day or every other day, but you need to tap into some system that's going to support your addiction and make you realize to stop it and the alternatives. And you have to have, you've got to have an accountability partner until you have those two things. You're lying to yourself. Right. You have to go, you have to go through rehab and you got to have some kind of mechanism uh, that can help you in perpetuality because what you, people don't realize is that once you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic to the day you die. Even if you don't drink it, have a drink for 25 years, you're still an alcoholic. Because you could have that one drink and have a, a relapse and start the whole process all over again. Because that, that addiction is will always be with you. Sure. You know? Yeah. And that's, I think, the thing that we want to avoid. Because, again, like we said, it, there's nothing wrong with the person who has a casual drink. But if you're already at that point where your body has become dependent on it, you're, you're an alcoholic. And it, having that one casual drink at a you know, a dinner party or at a, you know, holiday or a family get together or something like that could send you back down that, that path where then it becomes a habit again. And then now you have to go start this whole process all over again. And, you know, nobody wants that. Nobody wants to have to go through a detox or anything like that, or the rehab. That's just such a, if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, like if you could be spending your time doing anything, why would right. you choose to go do something like that? Right. Um, I know. So that, that there's so many better things that you could be doing with your time, experiencing better things in life. But when you get to that point, that is the best thing that's for you. you, well, know, well, you you're in a life or death situation. I mean, people don't realize that you, you if, cause if you don't get this help and if you don't seek recovery, you're going to die and you're going to die. The average alcoholic loses 30 years of their life. The average alcoholic for men is between the ages of 47 and 55. For women, it's about 55 to 62. You know, and that's, if my, you think about the, I mean, the my wife was it's 58. so young. Yeah, yeah. So it's crazy. You, you, you yeah. lost 30, 40 years of your life for what? <laughs> for, for running away from somebody. Right. Uh, running you know, away, a lot running of cases, away from problems. Right. It, you know, and it's, you know, just a much healthier way to, to do things is just by dealing with them head on and not masking the pain or running away from things like that. I mean, you know, I've talked about this before. I talked about it in my book, but when I returned from Afghanistan, that's how I dealt with things is right. I, I found myself drinking too much and right. realizing that nothing was getting better by drinking more and more. I, like my, my sleep was getting worse. My attitude was getting worse. My, like everything in my life was just getting worse. And my, your relationships, was relationships, my, my job, my every, everything was just not right. 
as good as it could have been. And so, so it was like, okay, well, what am I doing here? This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so, you know, that's why I mentioned that er earlier, how people sort of need to come to that realization on their own, that something has got to give here. Right. This is not the best way to be handling these things. And, you know, in my case, I was realizing like this drinking like this is not helping me. It's not making things better. I'm not sleeping well. I'm, I'm just a terror to be around. Right. Nobody, I don't want that for anybody. I didn't want that right. for my wife. I didn't want that for my kids. I didn't want that for anybody like that. So, you know, what am I doing here? And why don't I just deal with the problem head on and go and get the help that I needed? And that's ultimately what, what I ended up doing. And, you know, I was fortunate that it didn't get to that point where, where it was this habit six months, a year later and more where I'm, I'm drinking every single day constant, you know, I was able to uh, scale that back in time that I didn't get to that point. I didn't need to go to rehab or anything, but again, it was because I came to that conclusion on my own that I was able to say, okay, something's got to give here and I need to make a change uh, because whatever it is that I'm doing is not working. Did you have any uh, group or were you involved in anything like AA or? No. So, so for me, I ended up going to the VA for counseling and I was able to just deal with the issues that I was going through with the counselor that I was seeing. My wife was extremely supportive. She was right. there to help me through That's all a big of that. Part. Yeah, exactly. And right. you know, if, if I let this go too much longer, you know, I don't know how much, how much more support she'd be willing to offer, right. you know, and I'm glad that she right. stuck with me through my, the worst of my times. Right. But, but she was there, she was able to help me and kind of serve as that accountability partner for me where she was able to, I mean, she lived with me. So it was like, right. it was in house. It was like, I, you know, right. it was always there. And well, so that we have to give the military a little bit more slack too, because there's that other element, especially when you've been in conflict, that's a different level there. So, you know, you're not dealing with civilian issues. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I do agree with that, but also not to minimize some of the other issues that people have, you know, some of the civilian things, because there are other traumas that don't necessarily involve combat. There's people who've been in whether it's an auto accident or, or they've been assaulted or things like that, those are in a lot of cases, equally traumatic to right. uh, combat and they can be. And so right. that could be how people deal with it is by turning to alcohol or drugs or things like that. And I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but it's a way of dealing with things that people have found. And, you know, it, it's. I guess the whole point of this is there are better ways of dealing with things. And so, you know, if we're finding ourselves at the end of a bottle and we're doing this night after night, it's not healthy. You but you, you did the one thing that you had to do and you realized that you had a problem. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. That, and right. that's if, until you do that, you can't even start. Otherwise right. you're lying to yourself. You're just lying it, to yourself. Exactly. Now from the other side of the table here. So, right. you know, we talked about things like myself and your wife and people right. who have used alcohol in negative ways, right? Uh, clearly the impact of not only your wife's death, obviously that had an impact on you and your family, but the years leading up to that mm -hmm. point where you were finding her, like you said, passed out on the floor or, right, you know, EYs or different accidents. That had to have had an impact on your family, right? Oh, of um, course. What can 
other people do who've had bad relationships with alcohol and alcoholism, how can they, how can we better understand what's going on with the drinking and how it affects the families? Well, you really, you have to, each situation is a little bit different and you're going to have to ask yourself when you're in, involved in that situation, whether or not you want to stay in that situation. And you have two choices. Is this person willing to seek help and to get help? Or do I have to remove myself from the situation? And it can be a very, it can be a husband and wife. Like we were married for 20 plus years, or it can be a parent to a child, which is probably the most difficult situation when the parents have to say either get help or we will no longer be your codependent. We're not going to help you anymore. And these are the choices you have to make either if it's recognized as a true problem, if your people have DUIs and they're crashing and they're passing out, yeah, it's time to, you know, make a decision. You're either going to get help or you're going to lose your relationships that you're around. And I like to tell families, because I've spoken at some, some rehabs and I'm kind of a hardliner. I go, you know, your kids are, the reason why they're still drinking is because you're giving them money because you're allowing them to continue this behavior, you got to stop it. You've got to stop supporting this behavior. <laughs> and maybe it's, and I think it's the toughest relationship with parents and their kids, but you got to let your kids, you have to let your kids fail. You have to let them fail on their own because there's no better education than a zero bank account. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Reality hits you in the face real, real, quickly. real fast and you get real resourceful and it's time and it's time to grow up. Yeah. Hello? And time to grow up. It, you know? And alcohol isn't cheap when it's when, not cheap. Somebody's got to buy it. <laughs> exactly. When your bank account's down to nothing right. you're, and you're deciding whether or not you're going to have a roof over your head or a meal in your stomach or, you know, getting your alcohol fixed for the night. Right. You know, you got to start weighing the pros and cons. And uh, unfortunately, some people, you know, they do end up homeless because do. that's where they end up spending their money. And uh, that's not the ideal solution. But but you're right. Ha having then, nothing in the bank is yeah, tough. Either, yeah, when you find yourself homeless, then life starts getting real ugly, you know. Yeah, yeah especially in the in the worst of months, when, you know, whether it's the cold of winter or the heat of summer, like you have no respite from any of that in some cases, and that you really need to start thinking to yourself, is this really how I want to live out the rest of my days right. uh, suffering like this, right. you know, out on the streets. So well, some um, people have to hit rock bottom before they can make that decision to get help, that they just have to get there and yeah. realize I can't live this any way anymore. I got to make a change. Some people have to get that far down. And they do. And I've talked to people on this podcast before who've been at that point where they've right. been homeless, they've been you know, whether it's drugs or alcohol, they've been addicted to this stuff. And uh, they woke up one day and it, and it was like, I can't <laughs> see myself doing this for right. very much longer. I need to make a change. That's a kick in the butt that they need to get themselves back on the right track. And, you know, some of them now are successful business owners at families and homes and, and everything like that. And right. It all came because, again, they came to that conclusion on their own. And so it, it, I know it's not a, easy. It can turn into a positive, you know? Sure. It absolutely could. And it's not easy to see someone going through a situation like this, especially if they're a loved one, a spouse or a parent or something like that. But sometimes you kind of need to just have that tough love and let them, let them figure it out.
right. figure out just how hard it is. And hopefully they make that right decision and they get to that right point. But, you know, if not, you may need the help of, you know, intervention or rehab or any number of other things like that. So with that, tell us about your book again, Amanda, A Cautionary Tale. Where can people go to, to get a copy of the book and, and find out more about it? Yeah, you can go to amandaacautionarytale.com. You can sign up. I'm doing pre-orders. It's coming out in September because we're reworking it. I might even work it into, it's so long, I might make it into two or three books. But the first part is coming out September 1st. Go to you know, www.amandaacautionarytale.com. You can put your email in there. We'll send you a uh, a cover letter and we'll, we'll tell you when it comes out, where to go, what to do with it. I also have a support group. Facebook. It's just called Amanda Cautionary Tale on Facebook. I have excerpts and we talk about how to help people and where to go and what to do. And it's also a little bit about me and the podcast and what I'm trying to do with the whole story. Well, excellent. So I will put that in the show notes. And by the time this episode comes out, the book will already be out. So that lines up perfectly for us. So, so I'll have links to that in the show notes so people can go and check it out, grab a copy. And, uh, and find out more about, you know, everything that, that you're up to. So again, thank you for taking the time to join me. I really do appreciate the message that you have and unfortunate situation that you found yourself in, but you've made the best out of the situation that you were presented with. And so I applaud you for that. And thank you for coming on and taking the sure. time to share. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I really appreciate being here. Thank you for your service too, as well. Oh my God. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Drive On Podcast. If you want to check out more episodes or learn more about the show, you can visit our website, driveonpodcast.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Drive On Podcast. 